0: Section twenty eight of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume five. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Completion of the Doomsday Book, AD ten eighty six by charles knight when william the conqueror had been some years established in his english realm he found himself confronted with a feudal baronage largely composed of men who had gone with him from normandy where many of them had reluctantly bowed to his command they were jealous of the royal power and eager for military and judicial independence within their own manners the conqueror met this situation with the skill of political genius he granted large estates to the nobles but so widely scattered as to render union of the great landowners and hereditary attachment of great areas of population to separate feudal lords impossible he caused undertenants to be bound to their lords by the same conditions of service which bound the lords to the crown to which each subtenant swore direct fealty william also strengthened his position as king by means of a new military organization and by his control of the judicial and administrative systems of the kingdom. By the abolition of the four great earldoms of the realm he struck a final blow at the ambition of the greater nobles for independent power. By this stroke he made the shire the largest unit of local government. By his control of the national revenues he secured a great financial power in his own hands a large part of the manors were burdened with special dues to the crown and for the purpose of ascertaining and recording these william sent into each county commissioners to make a survey whose inquiries were recorded in the doomsday book so called because its decision was regarded as final this book in norman french contains the results of his survey of england made in ten eighty five to ten eighty six and consists of two volumes in vellum, a large folio of 382 pages, and a quarto of 450 pages. For a long time it was kept under three locks in the Exchequer, with the King's seal, and is now kept in the Public Records Office. In 1783, the British government issued a facsimile edition of it, in two folio volumes, printed from types specially made for the purpose, it is one of the principal sources for the political and social history of the time the doomsday book contains a record of the ownership extent and value of the lands of england at the time of the survey at the time of their bestowal when granted by the king and at the time of a previous survey under edward the confessor of the detailed registrations of tenants defendants livestock etc as well as of contemporary social features of the english people The following account presents interesting pictures. The survey contained in the Doomsday Book extended to all England, with the exception of Northumberland, Cumberland, Westmorland, and Durham. All the country between the Tees and the Tyne were held by the Bishop of Durham and he was reputed a Count Palatine, having a separate government. The other three northern counties were probably so devastated that they were purposely omitted Let us first see from the information of doomsday book by what men the land was occupied first we have barons and we have thanes the barons were the norman nobles the thanes the saxon these were included under the general designation of liberi homines free men which term included all the freeholders of a manor many of these were tenants of the king in capite that is they held their possessions direct from the crown others of these had placed themselves under the protection of some lord as the defender of their persons and estates they paying some stipend or performing some service in the register there are also liberi femini free women next to the free class were the socchamini or sockmen a class of inferior landowners who held lands under a lord and are owed suit and service in the lord's court but whose tenure was permanent they sometimes performed services in husbandry but those services as well as their payments were defined descending in the scale we come to the villani these were allowed to occupy land at the will of the lord upon the condition of performing services uncertain in their amount and often of the meanest nature but they could acquire no property in lands or goods and they were subject to many exactions and oppressions there are entries in doomsday book which show that the villani were not altogether bondmen but represented the saxon churl the lowest class were servi slaves the class corresponding with the saxon theo by a degradation in the condition of the villani and the elevation of that of the servi the two classes were brought gradually nearer together till at last the military oppression of the normans thrusting down all degrees of tenants and servants into one common slavery or at least into strict dependence one name was adopted for both of them as a generic term that of villeins regardant of the subdivisions of these great classes the register of ten eighty five affords us some particulars we find that some of the nobles are described as milites soldiers and sometimes the milites are classed with the inferior orders of tenantry. Many of the chief tenants are distinguished by their offices. We have among these the great regal officers, such as they existed in the Saxon times, the Camerarius and Cubicularius, from whom we have our Lord Chamberlain, the Dapperfer or Lord Steward, the Pincerna, or Chief Butler, the Constable and the Treasurer, We have the hawk-keepers and the bow-keepers, the providers of the king's carriages and his standard-bearers. We have lawmen and legates and mediciners. We have foresters and hunters. Coming to the inferior officers and artificers, we have carpenters, smiths, goldsmiths, farriers, potters, ditchers, launders, armorers, fishermen, millers, bakers, salters, tailors and barbers, we have mariners, munyers, minstrels and watchmen. Of rural occupations we have the beekeepers, plowmen, shepherds, neat herds, goat herds and swine herds. Here is a population in which there is a large division of labour. The freemen, tenants, villeins, slaves, are labouring and deriving sustenance from arable land, meadow, common, pasture, wood and water the grain-growing land is of course carefully registered as to its extent and value and so the meadow and pasture an equal exactness is bestowed upon the woods it was not that the timber was of great commercial value in a country which possessed such insufficient means of transport but that the acorns and beech-mast upon which great herds of swine subsisted were of essential importance to keep up the supply of food we constantly find such entries as a wood for pannage of fifty hogs there are woods described which will feed a hundred two hundred three hundred hogs and on the bishop of london's domain at fulham a thousand hogs could fatten the value of a tree was determined by the number of hogs that could lie under it in the saxon time and in this survey of the norman period we find entries of useless woods and woods without pannage. Which, to some extent, were considered identical in some of the woods, there were patches of cultivated ground, as the entries show, where the tenant had cleared the dense undergrowth and had his cornland and his meadows. Even the fenlands were of value for their rents were paid in eels. There is only mention of five forests in this record: Windsor, Gravelings, Wiltshire, Winburn, Witchwood, and the New Forest. Undoubtedly, there were many more, but being no objects of assessment, they are passed over. It would be difficult not to associate the memory of the conqueror with the New Forest, and not to believe that his unbridled will was here the cause of great misery and devastation. Audericus Vitalis says, speaking of the death of William's second son Richard, learn now, my reader, why the forest in which the young prince was slain received the name of the New Forest. That part of the country was extremely populous from early times, and full of well-inhabited hamlets and farms. A numerous population cultivated Hampshire with unceasing industry, so that the southern part of the district plentifully supplied Winchester with the products of the land. When William I ascended the throne of Albion, being a great lover of forests, he laid waste more than sixty parishes compelling the inhabitants to emigrate to other places and substituted beasts of the chase for human beings that he might satisfy his ardour for hunting there is probably some exaggeration in the statement of the country being extremely populous from early times this was an old woody district called etaine no forest was artificially planted as voltaire has imagined but the chases were opened through the ancient thickets and hamlets and solitary cottages were demolished it is a curious fact that some woodland spots in the new forest have still names with the terminations of ham and tun there are many evidences of the former existence of human abodes in places now solitary yet we doubt whether this part of the district plentifully supplied winchester with food as ordericus relates for it is a sterile district in most places fitted for little else than the growth of timber the lower lands are marsh and the upper are sand the conqueror says the saxon chronicle so much loved the high deer as if he had been their father the first of the norman kings and his immediate successors would not be very scrupulous about the depopulation of a district if the presence of men interfered with their pleasures But theory thinks that the extreme severity of the forest laws was chiefly enforced to prevent the assemblage of saxons in those vast wooded spaces which were now included in the royal domains all these extensive tracts were more or less retreats for the dispossessed and the discontented the normans under pretence of preserving the stag and the hare could tyrannize with a pretended legality over the dwellers in these secluded places and thus william might have driven the saxon people of Etane to emigrate and have destroyed their cottages as much from a possible fear of their association as from his own love of the high deer whatever was the motive they were devastation and misery doomsday shows that in the district of the new forest certain manors were afforested after the conquest cultivated portions in which the sabbath bell was heard william of jumiege the conqueror's own chaplain says speaking of the deaths of richard and rufus there were many who held that the two sons of william the king perished by the judgment of god in these woods since for the extension of the forest he had destroyed many inhabited places villas and churches within its circuit it appears that in the time of edward the confessor about seventeen thousand acres of this district had been afforested but that the cultivated parts remaining had then an estimated value of three hundred and sixty three pounds after the afforestation by the conqueror the cultivated parts yielded only one hundred and twenty nine pounds the grants of land to huntsmen venators are common in hampshire as in other parts of england and it appears to have been the duty of an especial officer to stall the deer that is to drive them with his troop of followers from all parts to the centre of a circle gradually contracting where they were to stand for the onslaught of the hunters in the survey many parks are enumerated the word hay which is still found in some of our counties meant an enclosed part of a wood to which the deer were driven in the seventeenth century this mode of hunting upon a large scale by stalling the deer this mimic war was common in scotland taylor called the water poet was present at such a gathering and has described the scene with a minuteness which may help us to form a picture of the norman hunters five or six hundred men do rise early in the morning and they do disperse themselves divers ways and seven eight or ten miles compass they do bring or chase in the deer in many herds two three or four hundred in a herd to such a place as the nobleman shall appoint them then when the day is come the lords and gentlemen of their companies do ride or go to the said places sometimes wading up to the middle through bourns and rivers and then they being come to the place do lie down on the ground till those four scouts which are called the tinkhelt do bring down the deer then after we had stayed there three hours or thereabouts we might perceive the deer appear on the hills around about us their heads making a show like a wood which being followed close by the tinkelt are chased down into the valley where we lay then all the valley on each side being waylaid with a hundred couple of strong irish greyhounds they are let loose as occasion serves upon the herd of deer that with dogs guns arrows dirks and daggers in the space of two hours fourscore fat deer were slain doomsday affords indubitable proof of the culture of the vine in england There are thirty-eight entries of vineyards in the southern and eastern counties. Many gardens are enumerated. Mills are registered with great distinctness, for they were invariably the property of the lords of the manors, lay or ecclesiastical, and the tenants could only grind at the lord's mill. Wherever we find a mill specified in doomsday, there we generally find a mill now. At Arundel, for example, we see what rent was paid by a mill, and there still stands at arundel an old mill whose foundations might have been laid before the conquest salt works are repeatedly mentioned they were either works upon the coast for procuring marine salt by evaporation or were established in the localities of inland salt springs the salt works of cheshire were the most numerous and were called witches hence the names of some places such as middlewich and nantwich The revenue from mines offers some curious facts. No mention of tin is to be found in Cornwall. The ravages of Saxon and Dane, and the constant state of hostility between races, had destroyed much of that mineral industry which existed in the Roman times, a century and a half after the conquest had elapsed, before the Norman kings had a revenue from the Cornish iron mines. Iron forges were registered, and lumps of hammered iron are stated to have been paid as rent. Lead works are found only upon the king's domain in Derbyshire. Fisheries are important sources of rent. Payments of eels are enumerated by hundreds and thousands. Herrings appear to have been consumed in vast numbers in the monasteries. Sandwich yielded 40,000 annually to Christchurch in Canterbury. Kent, Sussex and Norfolk appear to have been the great seats of this fishery the seven and the wye had their salmon fisheries whose produce king bishop and lord were glad to receive as rent there was a weir for thames fish at mortlake the religious houses had their piscina and vivaria their stews and fish pools doomsday affords us many curious glimpses of the condition of the people in cities and boroughs for the most part they seem to have preserved their ancient customs london winchester and several other important places are not mentioned in the record we shall very briefly notice a few indications of the state of society dover was an important place for it supplied the king with twenty ships for fifteen days in a year each vessel having twenty-one men on board dover could therefore command the service of four hundred and twenty mariners every burgess and lewis compounded for a payment of twenty shillings when the king fitted out a fleet to keep the sea at oxford the king could command the services of twenty burgesses whenever he went on an expedition or they might compound for their services by a payment of twenty pounds oxford was a considerable place at this period it contained upward of seven hundred houses but four hundred and seventy-eight were so desolated that they could pay no dues hereford was the king's domain and the honour of being his immediate tenants appears to have been qualified by considerable exactions when he went to war and when he went to hunt men were to be ready for his service if the wife of a burgher brewed his ale he paid ten pence the smith who kept a forge had to make nails from the king's iron in hereford as in other cities there were moneyers or coiners there were seven at hereford who were bound to coin as much of the king's silver into pence as he demanded. At Cambridge the burgesses were compelled to lend the sheriff their ploughs. Leicester was bound to find the king a hawk, or pay ten pounds, while a sumpter, or baggage horse, was compounded for at one pound. At Warwick there were 225 houses on which the king and his barons claimed tax, and 19 houses belonged to free burgesses the dues were paid in honey and corn in Shrewsbury, there were two hundred and fifty-two houses belonging to burgesses but the burgesses complained that they were called upon to pay as much tax as in the time of the confessor although earl roger had taken possession of extensive lands for building his castle chester was a port in which the king had his dues upon every cargo and where he had fines whenever a trader was detected in using a false measure the fraudulent female brewer of adulterated beer, was placed in the cucking-stool, a degradation afterward reserved for skulls. This city has a more particular notice as to laws and customs in the time of the confessor than any other place in the survey. Particular care seems to have been taken against fire. The owner of a house on fire not only paid a fine to the king, but forfeited two shillings to his nearest neighbor, skins appear to have been a great article of trade in this city no stranger could cart goods within a particular part of the city without being subjected to a forfeiture of four shillings or two oxen to the bishop we find as might be expected no mention of that peculiar architecture of chester called the rose which has so puzzled antiquarian writers the probability is that in a place so exposed to the attacks of the welsh were intended for defence the low streets in which the rows are situated have the road considerably beneath them like the cutting of a railway and from the covered way of the rows an enemy in the road beneath might be assailed with great advantage in the civil wars of charles i the possession of the rows by the royalists or parliamentary troops was fiercely contested of their antiquity there is no doubt they probably belonged to the same period as the castle the wall of chester and the bridge were kept in repair according to the survey by the service of one labourer for every hide of land in the county it is to be remarked that in all the cities and boroughs the inhabitants are described as belonging to the king or a bishop or a baron many even in the most privileged places were attached to particular manors The doomsday survey shows that in some towns there was an admixture of Norman and English burgesses, and it is clear that they were so settled after the conquest, for a distinction is made between the old customary dues of the place and those the foreigner should pay. The foreigner had to bear a small addition to the ancient charge. No doubt the Norman clung to many of the habits of his own land, and the Saxon unwillingly parted with those of the locality in which his fathers had lived but their manners were gradually assimilated the normans grew fond of the english beer and the english adopted the norman dress the survey of ten eighty five affords the most complete evidence of the extent to which the normans had possessed themselves of the landed property of the country the ancient domains of the crown consisted of fourteen hundred and twenty-two manors, but the king had confiscated the properties of godwin harold alga edward Morcar, and other great Saxon earls, and his revenues thus became enormous. Ordericus Vitalis states, with a minuteness that seems to imply the possession of official information, that the king himself received daily one and sixty pounds, thirty thousand pence, and three farthings sterling, money from his regular revenues in England alone, independently of presents, fines for offences, and many other matters which constantly enrich a royal treasury the numbers of manners held by the favourites of the conqueror would appear incredible if we did not know that these great nobles were grasping and unscrupulous, indulging the grossest sensuality with a pretence of refinement limited in their perpetration of injustice only by the extent of their power and so blinded by their pride as to call their plunder their inheritance ten norman chiefs who held under the crown are enumerated in the survey as possessing two thousand eight hundred and twenty manors. this enormous transfer of property did not take place without the most formidable resistance but when a period of tranquillity arrived came the era of castle building the saxons had their rude fortresses and entrenched earthworks but solid walls of stone for defence and residence were to become the local seats of regal and baronial domination doomsday contains notices of forty-nine castles but only one is mentioned as having existed in the time of edward the confessor some which the conqueror is known to have built are not noticed in the survey among these is the white tower of london the site of rochester castle is mentioned these two buildings are associated by our old antiquaries as being erected by the same architect Stowe says i find in a fair register book of the acts of the bishops of rochester set down by edmund of haddenham that william the first surnamed conqueror builded the tower of london to wit the great white and square tower there about the year of christ 1078 appointing gundolph then bishop of rochester to be principal surveyor and overseer of that work it was for that time lodged in the house of edmere a burgess of london the chapel in the white tower is a remarkable specimen of early norman architecture the keep of rochester castle so picturesquely situated on the medway was not a mere fortress without domestic convenience here we still look upon the remains of sculptured columns and arches we see where there were spacious fireplaces in the walls and how each of four floors was served with water by a well the third story contains the most ornamental portions of the building in the doomsday enumeration of castles we have repeated mention of houses destroyed and lands wasted for their erection at cambridge twenty-seven houses are recorded to have been thus demolished this was the fortress to overawe the fen districts at lincoln A hundred and sixty-six mansions were destroyed, on account of the castle. In the ruins of all these castles we may trace their general plan. There were an outer court, an inner court, and a keep. Round the whole area was a wall, with parapets and loopholes. The entrance was defended by an outwork or barbican. The prodigious strength of the keep is the most remarkable characteristic of these fortresses. And thus many of these towers remain, stripped of every interior fitting by time, but as untouched in their solid construction as the mounts upon which they stand. We ascend the steep steps which lead to the ruined keep of Carisbrooke, with all our historical associations directed to the confinement of Charles I in this castle, but this fortress was registered in Doomsday Book five centuries and a half had elapsed between william the first and james the first the norman keep was out of harmony with the principles of the seventeenth century as much as the feudal prerogatives to which charles unhappily clung we have thus enumerated some of the more prominent statistics of this ancient survey which are truly as much matter of history as the events of this beginning of the norman period there is one more feature of this doomsday book which we cannot pass over the number of parish churches in england in the eleventh century will in some degree furnish an indication of the amount of religious instruction by some most extraordinary exaggeration the number of these churches has been stated to be above forty five thousand in doomsday the number enumerated is a little above seventeen hundred no doubt this enumeration is extremely imperfect very nearly half of all the churches put down are found in lincolnshire norfolk and suffolk the register in some cases gives the amount of land with which the church was endowed bosham in sussex the estate of harold had in the time of king edward a hundred and twelve hides of land at the date of the survey it had sixty-five hides this was an enormous endowment some churches had five acres only some fifty some a hundred some are without land altogether but whether the endowment be large or small here is the evidence of a church planted upon the same foundation as the monarchy that of territorial possessions the politic ruler of england had in the completion of doomsday book possessed himself of the most perfect instrument for the profitable administration of his government he was no longer working in the dark whether he called out soldiers or levied taxes he had carried through a great measure rapidly and with a minuteness which puts to shame some of our clumsy modern statistics but the conqueror did not want his books for the gratification of official curiosity he went to work when he knew how many tenants in chief he could command and how many men they could bring into the field he instituted the great feudal principle of night service his ordinance is in these words we command that all earls barons knights sergeants and freemen be always provided with horses and arms as they ought and that they be always ready to perform to us their whole service in manner as they owe it to us of right for their fees and tenements and as we have appointed to them by the common council of our whole kingdom and as we have granted to them in fee with right of inheritance these words in fee with right of inheritance leave no doubt that the great vassals of the crown were absolute proprietors and that all their sub-vassals had the same right of holding in perpetuity the estate however reverted to the crown if the race of the original fefi became extinct and in cases also of felony and treason when elaine of bretagne who commanded the rear of the army at the battle of hastings and who had received four hundred and forty-two manors, bowed before the king at salisbury at the great council in ten eighty five and swore to be true to him against all manner of men he also brought with him his principal lands attend men landowners who also bowed before the king and became his men they had previously taken the oath of fealty to elaine of britannia and engaged to perform all the customs and services due to him for their lands and tenements Elaine and his men were proprietors but with very unequal rights Elaine, by his tenure was bound to provide to the king as many armed horsemen as the vast extent of his estates demanded but all those whom he had enfeoffed or made proprietors upon his four hundred and forty-two manors were each bound to contribute a proportionate number when the free service of forty days was to be enforced the great earl had only to send round to his vassals and the men were at his command by this organization which was universal throughout the kingdom sixty thousand cavalry could with little delay be called into the field those who held by this military service had their allotments divided into so many knights fees and each knights fee was to furnish one mounted and armed soldier the great vassals retained a portion of their land as their domains having tenants who paid rents and performed services not military but under any circumstances the vassal of the crown was bound to perform his whole free service with men and horses and arms it is perfectly clear that this wonderful organization rendered the whole system of government one great confederacy in which the small proprietors tenants and villanes had not a chance of independence and that their condition could only be ameliorated by those gradual changes which result from a long intercourse between the strong and the weak in which power relaxes its severity and becomes protection in the ordinance in which the king commanded free service he also says we will that all the freemen of the kingdom possess their lands in peace free from all tollage and unjust exaction this unhappily for the freemen was little more than a theory under the norman kings there were various modes of making legal exaction the source of the grossest injustice when the heir of an estate entered into possession he had to pay a relief or heriot to the lord this soon became a source of oppression in the crown and enormous sums were exacted from the great vassals the lord was not more sparing of his men he had another mode of extortion he demanded aid on many occasions such as the marriage of his eldest daughter or when he made his eldest son a knight the estate of inheritance which looked so generous and equitable an arrangement was perpetual grievance for the possessor could neither transmit his property by will nor transfer it by sale the heir however remote in blood was the only legitimate successor The feudal obligation to the lord was, in many other ways, a fruitful source of tyranny, which lasted up to the time of the Stuarts. If the heir were a minor, the lord entered into possession of the estate without any accountability. If it descended to a female, the lord could compel her to marry according to his will, or could prevent her marrying. During a long period all these harassing obligations connected with property were upheld, the crown and the nobles were equally interested in their enforcement and there can be little doubt that though the great vassals sometimes suffered under these feudal obligations to the king the inferior tenants had a much greater amount of oppression to endure at the hands of their immediate lords but if the freemen were oppressed in the tenure of their property we can scarcely expect that the landless man had not much more to suffer if he committed an offence in the saxon time he paid a mulct. if in the norman he was subjected to an immerciement his whole personal estate was at the mercy of the lord having thus obtained a general notion of the system of society established in less than twenty years after the conquest we see that there was nothing wanting to complete the most entire subjection of the great body of the nation what had been wanting was accomplished in the practical working out of the theory that the entire land of the country belonged to the king it was now established that every tenant-in-chief should do homage to the king that every superior tenant should do homage to his lord that every villein should be the bondman of the free and that every slave should without any property however limited and insecure be the absolute chattel of some master the whole system was connected with military service This was the feudal system. There was some resemblance to it in parts of the Saxon organization, but under that organization there was so much of freedom in the allodial or free tenure of land that a great deal of other freedom went with it. The casting off of the chains of feudality was the labor of six centuries. End of section twenty eight. Recording by Florence.